When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey Geekscapists, welcome to a brand new Geekscape podcast. I'm Jonathan London, your host, and each week I like to sit down with filmmakers, comic book creators, actors, video game experts, you you name it. If they're in pop culture and they got something to say, I like to sit down with them and learn from them and kind of celebrate our culture, our pop culture. This episode is no different. It is a audio-only episode. You won't find this one on our YouTube page or our Facebook group, which you should be a part of. You should search for Geekscape and join those groups. Um, this one is uh, pre-recorded. It's with a filmmaker named Robin Pront. He was nice enough to stay up super late in Antwerp and talk to me. He talks about uh, the difference between shooting in Belgium, shooting in Canada. He talks about this brand new film that he made that comes out this weekend on VOD called The Silencing. It stars Nikolai Koster-Waldau. I think I butchered his name. He played Jamie Lannister on Game of Thrones, and he plays a very different character in this movie. Uh, this movie is kind of like a tense thriller. If you're a big fan of, um, let's see, David Fincher, I think you'd really enjoy this one. Uh, and if you're a filmmaker, you're really going to enjoy our talk because we really get into things like tone and setup and using steady cam versus using handheld and <laughs> shooting in Canada <laughs> uh, and praying that the snow will disappear before uh, you have to film because you know, erasing snow digitally is just something that most filmmakers cannot do on an independent budget. But the movie's called The Silencing. It comes out this weekend. I think y'all should all check it out. And uh, that's um, pretty much the setup for the episode. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, would really love if right now you share Geekscape using that little share button with like five of your friends. Just pick out like five of your friends right now. Let's say you're using your phone and you're like, oh, yeah. This is a fun episode. I kind of like it. Uh, I'm going to you know, text it to five of my friends right now. I'm going to hit that little share button in my podcast app, and I'm just going to pick five friends right now. Let's see. Let's, uh, let's send it to Matt. Let's, uh, let's send it to uh, Rachel. Let's put Jesse on there. 
Um, let me go ahead and throw it to Mark. And just for the heck of it, I'm going to put Jenny in there as well. And those five friends of mine are going to get Geekscape. So share it with five friends of yours. And then, you know, while you're on that app, go ahead and leave us a five-star review. Uh, go to iTunes and leave us a review there or uh, Google, wherever you have Geekscape. Maybe it's Spotify, wherever you're listening. Leave us a review. That stuff really helps our visibility. And that is going on. I'll be back in LA next week. Uh, right now, I am recording this from Austin, Texas. I'm on my return back across the country. We made it all the way to South Carolina through New Orleans. Um, saw a lot of cool stuff. Uh, it's, I think everybody should travel cross country, especially if you're in the U.S. Definitely travel co- cross country, one end to the other. See what the the country has to offer, and be, beyond that, just like watch the diversity happen to see how much uh, things change from one state to another or just mile after mile. See how the people change and uh, hang out, find some cool places and make some memories because when else are you going to do this? Uh, It's kind of been uh, pretty amazing to go into New Orleans and because of coronavirus, see an almost completely empty Bourbon Street in French Quarter. Uh, that was kind of the highlight of the trip. And uh, I got to tell you, Greenville, South Carolina, where Heidi grew up, is a pretty awesome town. It's got some cool stuff. Um, walked around there and kind of saw the changes happening in that place. And now I've made my way back across the country. Next time you hear from me, I'll probably be in Los Angeles. Uh, although you never know. Who knows? Um, and this has been a pretty cool trip. Uh, it's been you know, scary at times. We definitely have to take precautions because coronavirus, we're in a pandemic. You can't deny that. Uh, But it's also been really, really fun and eye-opening in a lot of ways. So the tour of America is almost over. And uh, when you hear from me, I'll probably be back in Los Angeles. This was recorded in South Carolina and on Robin's End, Antwerp. I hope you enjoy it. Here's Robin Prant, heavy filmmaking discussion, and he's talking about his new film, The Silencing, that comes out this weekend. Enjoy, Geekscapists. So tell me a little bit about um, about The Silencing. Silencing is a crime thriller with Nikolai Kostowaldau. Um, it's a movie that I made, and yeah, it's... Uh, it's, uh, um, it's, it's a thriller about uh, a hunter that goes looking for his missing daughter and comes across his path with a vicious killer. And while he's being hunted by the sheriff and the other police forces in the town where he resides. Yeah. What I like about it, I saw the movie the other day and uh, first off, I like, I love Nikolai. Anybody who's uh, watched game of Thrones, obviously will recognize him as Jamie Lannister. And he's just an incredibly charismatic actor, especially in Game of Thrones. He had to play both a villain at sometimes and then obviously a uh, a good guy. And he had this moral ambiguity to him that I think he's also carried over into this role. And there's a lot of moral ambiguity going on with your lead characters, including uh, the one Nikolai had to play. Uh, Geeks gave us to give a little bit of context. He's someone who's chosen to live on his own as a... He lives on like a forest reserve and um, makes sure that hunters aren't out there poaching animals and things like that. But his life of solitude is a bit chosen because he's in grief over the disappearance of his daughter. Uh, and so, like uh, like Robin said, when when 
people start disappearing or when he sees that something might be going on on the grounds uh, that somebody's actually hunting people, um, he gets involved uh, mainly maybe out of the sense of failure for losing his daughter in the first place, or maybe the, the idea that maybe this person is responsible and maybe this will, this will answer some questions. I love the, the idea that it's a thriller. And I also love that you don't really know, uh, nobody's, nobody's really morally black and white in this one, including the sheriff that you were talking about. It's really easy to, uh, cast a female lead as the town sheriff, the unpopular town sheriff, uh, who nobody likes. There's a scene early in the movie where she drives by an election billboard that's been marked up with, uh, derogatory things about her. Um, and, uh, and it's easy for you to just make her the underdog, the good guy, obviously someone down on his luck after losing his daughter, it's easy for them to become the underdog and they're just immediately the good guy, but there's a lot of moral ambiguity going on here. Uh, what, what was some of the handling of that as a director? Uh, you know, how, how do you get an actor to not just go full on good guy role? How much of it was the script? How much of it was you in a careful balancing act with someone like Nikolai? Yeah. I mean, it's, I have to give credit to the writer, Micah, who did a wonderful job writing those characters. And then of course, I mean, just the idea already as a director, you're, you know, you're deciding, you know, who's going to play the lead and all that stuff. So you, by casting, you already create the character because I know Nikolai, of course, in Game of Thrones, he did such, such a wonderful job. And what I thought, what I, what I, what I love about Nikolai is that he also has some kind of, yeah, he's a, he has great comedic timing and all that stuff. He's generally, he's, he's very funny, even when he's being grumpy, you know, and I thought that was also, you know, important for the role that you, despite him, being heartbroken and almost drunk the whole time that he's still like, he has some kind of, you know, uh, boyish charm to him because he's, you know, he's a little, yeah. So I thought that was important. And then just on set, you know, just, just working with the actors and small nuances here and there. And you just, you know, you let it flow, but you have a general idea of what, you know, what the film is or what your film should be. And you just tweak it a little bit, but that's, that's the luxury of working with, you know, actors like these that they're like, you know, you get the keys to driving a Ferrari if you're working with these actors. You know, it's just, um, I, I imagine driving a Ferrari is a lot harder, but it's just the, the idea that you get the, you know, they're just so good. It's just, I have to give credit to them. Me, I'm just, I think the most important thing for a director is to be the guardian of tone. You know, you're just always looking like, okay, what is the tone of my film? And that you have to find the balance within the film that the tone always you know, and if you want to change the stone in the film, that's fine, but make it a choice, you know, but at least it's always, for me, it's important that when I look at the monitor that I'm seeing the film that I want to see, that's, you know, that that's just very important. And that goes, you know, with acting or visually, all that stuff. Were there any discoveries on set? Because uh, I feel like you had a pretty awesome tone just throughout. And wh where did you establish it when you're looking at the script? Was it in that opening image? And Geekscapists who are checking out the film, the movie opens on a body floating in a river from a, a pretty high up, uh, the, you know, like a drone shot of this river flowing and in the wilderness. And you just can start making out a body amongst the foam of the, of the waves. And it's it kind of sets the tone right there. Just it's a pretty grim image. Um, what were the pieces that you used to educate yourself for that tone visually? Yeah. knowing that you have this script, but visually what are, what are some of the things that you drew upon? And then were there discoveries on set where you say, okay, well, 
you know, my tone has led me this far, but I just made a discovery maybe with working with the actors or I discovered this, the, you know, this location or a color scheme that really works. And I want to explore that. Yeah. So it's interesting that you say that because the, the opening scene was something that wasn't originally in the script. You know, the original scene in the script was a very, a very visceral action scene, which was also really good. But due planning and time constraints, I was always in the back of my head that I had to find maybe something more simple but equally efficient. And I was driving around looking for a location and I saw like a, a sign that says 20 miles till waterfalls. And I said, oh, let's check out the waterfalls. And they said, but yeah, but there's a waterfall in the script. And I, and I said, yeah, well, there might be one now. So, so we drove up to the waterfalls. And then when I saw when I saw the location, it was beautiful. I said, "All right, I have to put this location in the script." So I, I contacted the, the writer, and uh, we started uh, talking about it. And that's how we came up with this scene of the floating body. So um, yeah, that's something that I just—I mean—that I—that I created on the spot, you know, almost while driving around looking for locations. And then, um, uh, yeah. No, I think it's a tough place to start. And they tell screenwriters a lot to, you know, really grab them in the first 10 pages. You need to have an action scene in the first five pages or a huge set piece in the first five pages. And I think a lot of times it's a trap, especially for making a terse, like a really tense thriller like this, um, because you end up with this huge set piece and the audience gets, you know, they, yeah, they, they, they get brought into the film violently and, and they're excited, but how do you lay the tracks from there and not disappoint them with a designed lull, especially for a thriller, which works so much on, like you said, timing and tone in drawing out the questions and and answers that you, that you're going to feed them. Um, I think you nailed it on this opening. I was immediately, you know, there's just so many questions of who this person is, where are they, who were they? And, you know, obviously like who is looking for them or not looking for them and where are they going to end up and how is it going to throw the story forward? Um, starting with an action scene, I think is great, but so many screenwriters I feel get stuck aiming for that and it spins out the beats and the tone for the rest of the script. And it's hard to recover. It's hard to hit that, that level again. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's something, you know, I, even when I'm writing my own scripts, I was like, all right, let's start off with a bang. But sometimes, you know, I mean, look at uh, There Will Be Blood, which just starts with 15 minutes of a guy going into a well and just digging, you know, without dialogue. It's just, and it, it's, I mean, it's, my parents would probably call it slow and tedious, but to me, it's really hypnotizing and it really drags you into the film, you know, and you immediately know who this character is, you know, so it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it, but it's, but I understand, you know, in a big blockbuster, you enjoy watching, you know, a big action scene that puts you on the edge of your seat immediately. And then you have a little bit of uh, explanation and uh, and all that stuff. You know, that's how it works. But, yeah, I mean, it's I, I just for me, I'm always looking. I'm always very receptive to 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 things, you know, to actor suggestions or to locations and see how they work and. To go back to your other question, you know, like the, the, the look of the film, you know, I was I was very much I know the film should be dark and bleak and because I gravitate gravitate towards those kind of things, you know, that's how I sold myself into the movie by creating this isolated, cold, bleak world. But that doesn't mean it doesn't need color, you know, because I, I don't like movies the look of movies where oh the, this movie's dark, so we're gonna make everything dark. You know, I I still like for the image to have color and that's when 
I uh, all the interiors, like there's a like Rayburn is at a strip club at some point. He's and it supposedly was set in a smoky bar, but smoky bar, you know, I was just like, yeah, I'm gonna put some neons, and it was a little bit cliche. So I saw this strip club, which had beautiful lighting in itself, you know, and it's just like if I put him at the at the counter of the strip club or the bar, so the strip club is just in the back, so it becomes a little bit more subtle. And then I get I get to work with all these colors. Even Nikolai's jacket that he wears in the in the forest is very bright and orange, and that was a decision that I made as well, you know, just to bring color into the movie because otherwise it becomes like this gray brownish matter the whole time, which I don't particularly like. And we've seen those movies. We've definitely seen those movies that use that sort of affinity of similar color schemes and constant color schemes to use it sort of as like a lull so that later they can punctuate things. But I think you're doing it in in every shot for the most part is where you do have that backdrop that is pretty constant, pretty still, and also feels safe. And then you punctuate it with the important things, the character, like you said, the character's outfit, or maybe they're the odd person out and they're, they're the dark thing in this colorful background. Um, yeah, film isn't really something that that has. I, I think that any time somebody gives you a rule, like you got to start out the first five minutes with an action scene, I think that's a really great recipe for making movies like everybody else makes them. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that is that is where I say that that is a trap. And and uh, and ultimately, like you, what you said with there will be blood. I think what's awesome about that beginning isn't the introduction of an action scene or a massive set piece. Ultimately, it's the introduction of a question, yeah. right? I think that is really what we want. And action scenes are kind of like the, uh, I don't want to say the lazy way of doing it because it's it works for a lot of people. And obviously we go and see these films and we love the the, the high uh, drama and we love the, the, the big set pieces. But for a movie like this that is based a lot on character and based a lot on mood, um, starting with questions is probably the more effective way to pull an audience into a movie. You know, you do not have close-ups on this body. It is a giant river and we kind of want to get there in the same way, you know, there will be blood. I, I want to go back and see that scene and just wonder how many times, uh, Daniel day Lewis has his back to the camera so that we're forced to ask, who is this person? We want to see his face, you know, and it's that sort of cat and mouse game of questions that you give to the audience. And when you pay off those answers and showing a character in full detail up close in their face, it just kind of spoils it right away. And it doesn't do a whole lot for drawing you into the movie. At the same time, the problem, the problem is this is a movie about um, searching for somebody searching for something. And I feel like those first shots are so important in educating an audience as to what this movie is about. And like, there will be blood, somebody who can't help but dig a hole for themselves, which over the course of the movie, no matter how successful they are, the movie ends when they've dug a hole for themselves that they can't get over, get out of. And uh, no spoiler for this. <laughs> there will, I mean, it's kind of a spoiler for there will be blood, but you know, when he says I'm done, He's done, and that's the movie. It's him digging a hole that he can't get out of, no matter how successful he is. And in this movie, you start the the opening frames with almost a. I mean, I'm dumbing it down because it's me, and I do have a tendency to dumb things down. But it's almost a Where's Waldo, yeah. And the movie is a movie about searching outwardly and inwardly, and you start with those opening frames and those giant 
uh, overhead shots and hey, look for something in the in these frames. Where do you see something? Do you not see something? It it, it falls away from you as soon as as as, uh, as soon as you you grasp it. Um, I think it, the instincts may be what you're talking about as well. Um, where did you, where did, how did the instincts get you involved in this project? Uh, knowing your earlier movie, the Ardennes, you have a, a, a lot of thematic work with family loyalty yeah. and community loyalty and also societal loyalty. Those seem to be themes that you've been working with for a while. Where did your instincts, how did they start leading you down that road to being, yeah into that stuff are you even into that stuff yeah i mean you're right it's something that that i've been i mean those themes come back a lot for me and I, and, I, and i don't really know because i don't work like all right these are the themes that i want to talk about you know I, I work different i always have like an idea or a scene or just a general feeling of a movie and then i and i work my way back around and i always come back to the same things for some reason and that's why i'm calling them instincts for sure like like these are your instincts. Yeah, it's 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 weird, you know, because I don't know. It's yeah, my family. I don't know if I go look. I have I have a brother, and I have my parents, and I have a good relationship with them. And I, I guess you know, when I grew up, you know, it was, it was clear that there was a sense of loyalty and a sense of bro- brotherhood between my friends, but not in the. I guess in a way, I'm always. I love gangster films, and those films are a lot about loyalty as well, you know. So maybe I'm ed- more. I'm more a, pro- a product of the movies that I watched than the actual product of my my environment, in particular, or something. You know, it's just it's something that I always, yeah, gravitate towards too as well. You know, um, I would. Uh, do you make movie? Uh, here's here's something that I work with as a filmmaker because whenever I have a, a movie that I want to make or a script that I want to write, I sometimes feel like I'm exercising a demon. I sometimes feel like I'm I'm sort of grappling with my own uh questions and, and maybe helplessness to a degree but and things that that i'm afraid of like loss or the passage of time or these bigger ideas uh i try and literalize them um or capture them maybe in images or in story uh do you think maybe there's some of that going on as as a way that's shaped your instincts and i don't mean to put a an answer in your uh in your mouth, but have you thought about something like that? Knowing that you're, you're two feature films in so far. And I, I think, and, and this stuff has come up. <laughs> I'm asking you to think about that stuff. Now, if you haven't thought about that stuff before, Robin. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, I don't have a clear answer to that because it's something that I think about a lot as well, you know, because you're trying mm-hmm. to, like, I, and I, I look at interviews with, 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 with directors who are old, and see like how do they know what they you know because it's 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 like it's a it's yeah it's 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 you being like a storyteller and an artist and you but you, I feel like even the big directors like Spielberg or, or I think they they learn about what they want to say when they've already done it you know and not that's something that comes back often you know so I don't know yeah I honestly don't have a clear answer for that. I think Spielberg's actually gone on record as saying that he tries not to literalize this stuff because when he does, it kind of spoils the secret sauce. I think that's, I'm paraphrasing, but I think that's sort of the way he's worked is that he has this instinctual approach to a script or to a story. uh, And if he tries to literalize it too much, which may be a, a problem that I have, but if he tries to literalize it too much and he turns it into math almost, 
that it does spoil that instinctive kind of pull to uh, a visual or a, a rhythm or a beat. Um, and then next thing you know, the magic's out and the magic has been turned into science. Yeah, it's something that I often wonder, like, I know we're, we're off the, with this, but it's, it's something like even AI, like I always wonder, like would, would AI eventually be able to write a, a real a script? You know, I know they would be eventually be able to write a script AI, but something that really hits you in the guts and in the feels, you know, like, is that possible? Because it's still, it's something, you know, it's weird, you know, like what is it that grabs me? Sometimes I read an article and it's just like a really smart, small article about a family who lost their daughter 15 years ago and the burglar took the, the only remnant that they had of the daughter of a, a jewel that she wore. And it, and it, and it really, it really touched me the article, you know, because it's like, Oh man, that was the one memory that you have of your kid. And then some burglar takes away and he probably doesn't know that it's so important for the family. It's something that I read like a couple of weeks ago. And it's just, and those are the things that kind of stay with me, you know, just small details, you know, it's never a big story. It's just always like a detail or something that touches me and, and thinking, ah, oh, this could be a movie or something like that. Right now I'm actually working on, it's an, it's, it's a thing that's set in the in the 1900s in 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 Africa, and it's a it's an arena, and 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 it's really hard for me because I love the arena so much. You know, it's it's a, and, and I've done so much. I've read I've read over like 10 or 11 books about it, but it's hard for me to to really find the story that I want to tell. You know, because I'm I'm just thinking about this arena and why I love this arena, but I need to find something that gets to me on a personal level, you know, and that's what mm -hmm. you're looking for. Something that touches you that you, that you, when you read a script, you want to have the feeling that you're the perfect guy to tell the, the only guy to tell the story. You know, that's, that's very important. Yeah. And you need your in, I agree with you. You're talking about an arena in like a Roman Coliseum sense where people are, are set to uh, fight each other. No, I'm sorry. No, what I mean, yeah, maybe it's not the same in in, in, in an arena as in a setting. A setting. It's it basically colonial Belgium, you know, and it's the mm -hmm. setting that I that I really like because it's it's very brutal. It's very, I mean, we, horrible things have happened over there, you know, and it's just I love this, you know, the whole setting. So I, I've I've done so much research on on the whole subject, but I there's not. Yeah, that's what I mean with the setting. Like Gladiator is set in within the Roman Empire or something like that. Yeah, and sometimes it takes a, a lot of work to find the you in someone else's story or the you in someone else's setting without completely taking it over and destroying the thing that made it a, a wonderful story or something that an audience would be able to buy into in the first place. Um, with, with something like this and working with Micah, uh, where did this story come from? Did you talk? Uh, was it based on uh, anything that? Yeah. There's nothing in the movie that said that this was part of a real occurrence. And like, what was the nugget of this story for you? And what do you? Th what does Micah said is the nugget of the story for him? I think Micah. Well, Micah's from Minnesota, so he knows these this, this world and these people. And the the movie's actually set in Minnesota. But one of the first things that I did was that I want to take it out of literally out of Minnesota and make it more in a general small town universal setting because I felt that Minnesota is kind of owned by the Coen brothers. So you don't want to have a big plaque in the beginning of your movie that says Minnesota or something like that, you know? So I, and he understood, but if, for him, it was very, I mean, it was a, yeah, the, 
like the world that he grew up in was very personal to him. Like he went out hunting a lot. And then I think he was inspired by this killer called Robert Hansen, if I'm not mistaken, who hunted uh, people uh, in the woods, who who took girls from the uh, from the freeway and then he set them free and then he started hunting them in the woods. So I think that was an inspiration for him as well. Oh, that's freaky. And did he use an atlatl? The the weapon that uh, that is pretty unique in the movie is one of those slings that you put an arrow in and you sling it at people and this arrow goes shooting through and can go up to over 100 miles an hour. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. I'd have to Google it myself. You know, a ghillie suit I knew from playing Counter-Strike. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> But the Atlanta, I did not know what that was. So I had to Google it and then I did some research. And then, um, yeah, so basically I was extremely lucky to find the one Atlanta expert in Canada who was actually really close to where we were uh, shooting. So he was on set and we started. The only the thing with the Atlanta, it doesn't like if you Google Atlanta, it kind of looks it's not intimidating, you know, but I wanted the weapon to be intimidating. So we, I, we had one custom made, which was really cool. And then, uh, yeah, that's how it came to be, you know. And then, uh, of course, the the, the, the the stunt team had to practice with the Atlatl because they had to know how to throw it and all that stuff. It was very interesting. And it was that's the club-looking thing that yeah. you're... Oh, yeah, exactly. uh, it looks like a giant club in the movie. I think that they were... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that they were actually smaller and slimmer in yeah. real life. And you you knock a bow, you like knock your arrow into it, yeah. and you you like fling it at people. <laughs> Which you know, how is that not still a design in a, in modern weaponry? <laughs> you know, it's really difficult. You know, it's extremely difficult. Yeah, I mean, you, you make it seem pretty eerie, and obviously, there's things like sound design. What I love about uh, your style is you did a really good job of balancing your handheld versus your 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 kind of more controlled camera with the, yeah. whether it was a, uh, a steady camera or something. And also like your long shots versus your, 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 uh, your kind of quick cuts to build the tension. You draw things out, you build them up and then you start hitting them with a lot of quick shots or very close yeah. shots where we're off angle or behind your actors or, you know, whip panning to your actors or from your actors. Uh, where did you get some of those techniques? Who are like your big influ- influences in this, in this world? I mean, the guy that always amazes me is Fincher, you know, like he's the, like, that's the guy that, you know, that's watches movies that just film school, you know, like he's, he's great, you know, but I think for this movie, um, I, I wanted to bring some realism to the movie, you know, some, some, what I thought was important that it has some kind of almost uh, European verite social realism vibe to it as well, you know, because it's also like this character driven drama. And then I guess Winter's Bone was kind of uh, an example for me as well, you know, the stylistically of that film, you know, I love that film as well, you know, and I wanted to combine that, you know, with these, with these action set pieces. And I thought that could be an interesting mix. Um, yeah. And then for the Ardennes, uh, the, the, every, I remember when a teacher said to me when I was in film school, I did a short film, which was I, w- I was really proud of. And this guy, uh, and I like I won some amor- awards when I was still in film school, but my teacher, who was a, a French director, I said, yeah, yeah, it's good. But uh, 
you cut you cut too much you cut too much he said in uh yeah french uh, english <laughs> because and then uh and then i started and then he really taught me about w more and more about where to put the camera in and and all that stuff so for the ardennes like i really wanted to avoid a handheld to prove to myself so the ardennes my first film is very much controlled but for this movie yeah i really felt like we needed that handheld to get up and close with the characters and give it that gritty realism to it as well you know that it doesn't you know that it, that it didn't became too slick that was important for me that it didn't became like a slick thriller right right and when you look at something like fincher he he does use his camera very methodically with a lot of mood and uh and i and i think spielberg does it as well that's why when you when you watch something that like i think in the last couple of years um I think it definitely with Saving Private Ryan and, and since Spielberg has picked his spots with handheld. Um, but I, th I think, uh, oh man, I'm, uh, I'm losing it. Um, but I think when you watch something like Frost Nixon, yeah, I think, I think Frost Nixon completely uh, redefined um, his career. Uh, the, I mean, we're not talking about Spielberg. We're talking about um, uh, help me out here. Uh, this is like the easiest one ever. Uh, I'm going to Google it real quick. Uh, and the audience is yelling at me. Um, but it is, uh, when, when you have a, uh, a director like, like Ron Howard, who uses a lot of controlled camera when I think that when he added a little bit of handheld and up close with Frost Nixon or with that racing movie that he did with Chris Helmsworth, I think that it completely turned him into a new filmmaker. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, like, but it's hard. But it's hard to pick the spots because, like your professor said, it, you know, handheld and quick cutting is a is like I said earlier about the the action sequence in the first five minutes. It it can you can really lean on it as an artificial means of creating tension. You can yeah. really lean on it on a, as a way of almost shaking your audience into paying attention. Yeah, but don't, it's 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 like we have to say like it is. It also works faster. You know, like it's just it, it's just sometimes yeah. You're on set, you know, and you come up with this. I, it's, it, it's just, it's a little bit more convenient sometimes, you know. But it's definitely like, it, for me particularly, also in the woods, you know, because there were moments when I, when I, when it was, when it was the equation of like, am I going to do this controlled or handheld? But controlled, all right, I'm going to have to build the track here in the woods. They have to going to build yeah. it. It will take time. Everything, you know. So you have to take that into account as well. Sometimes, you know, you have a lot of. I mean, you can be. I mean, I, I've not had the luxury yet of shooting as long as I want, you know, so it's always, you you always have to make decisions artistically, but also like getting it done, you know, so it's always it kind of have to find the balance between that as well. Yeah. And a steady cam, obviously it, you got to, you got to measure that or you got to balance the freaking thing. And it, it, that comes with its own, you know, that it comes with its own restrictions with this remote location y'all shot in, in Ontario, uh, how much did that affect your shooting schedule? How much did, were you sitting there saying, okay, we, like oh, we're going to lose a lot of our days in driving. Yeah. Were you forced to do things like French hours after a while? Yeah, it was difficult, you know, because here in, I mean, that's one of the big differences here in, in, in Bell or I was used to shooting that the drive up to the location is not taken to, into account here in Belgium, you know, it's just, wow. so, but they had to, I couldn't believe it, you know, when they said, yeah, 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 but it's already, if we drive it, we lose an hour just driving to the location. I was like, what? So it's, I think it's like 20 minutes that they take off and then all the rest is like, it's actual shooting time. So it was difficult, you know? Yeah. Because 
So you have to take everything with you when you're doing that, you know, and it's, I mean, we're, we had to shoot in this, this wilderness, but it had to be close to roads. The waterfall that you see in the movie is next to a road, you know, that's the only reason why we could shoot there. If it was actually in the middle of nowhere, because there, it wouldn't be possible because there was an, a, there was a park called Killarney, which was beautiful, you know, and I really wanted to shoot there, but it just wasn't possible because we, we have to have to bring every crew member up there and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, it was for for me. That was difficult to adapt, you know, to to get the whole work, how how everything works on a on a on a set here in North America. Yeah, I imagine in uh, Geekscapers who are less familiar with the the way that some of the unions work, you know, people can only work twelve hour days, and if you go over, that starts cutting into the day afterwards because they need to have twelve hours offset before they can return. And if you start going over, especially in a movie like this that is has so many exterior locations where you're kind of racing the sun up and the sun down, by the end of the week, you can start losing half your day if you haven't done the math properly and conserved the hours. And so I can see how the handheld definitely came out and helped a lot. But some of these big areas like, like this forest, um, what about lighting this stuff? What were some of the challenges you ran into in lighting it? And how much did you lean on your DP for things like natural lighting yeah. and stuff like that so you guys could get up and go every day? Definitely. Manu, my Manu Dacos, who's a great, very talented DP, he, he doesn't, he doesn't, he almost only uses natural light, you know, which is great, you know. That was very easy to shoot. Oh, that's a requirement on this movie, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. That's something that because I had never worked with him, so but I love this earlier. I love the work that he did. He worked for this French director Francois Ozon, and also you know Fabrice Duels. We did some great horror films, and this I loved. I loved. I loved the way he lit his movie. So I, we got to talking, but I said like, all right, we're sometimes we're gonna need to work fast, you know. And I said, yeah, yeah, don't worry. I I I almost use no light unless you want me to. And I said, no, no, it's fine for the woods and all that. Stuff stuff i think because i mean yeah in the the ending sequence which is in the dark we had just like we had the big big um yeah just like a moon light that just lit the condors yes yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know the word in english anymore <laughs> yeah, so, it's just it just lit up the whole forest just we had one lighting uh setup that lit up the whole forest and which you just work really fast you know which was really important yeah, no, I think that run and gun is something that you'd have to do in a movie that takes place in this many exteriors without losing chunks of days at a time. Uh, and it, I, I bet the actors loved it because they didn't have a lot of off time. They could stay in character. They could just go. And with a visceral movie like this, I think it I think it maybe lent to some of the energy of what you were putting together. Would you agree? There's a famous um, Dutch soccer player called Johan Kraft who, who said the legendary words like, "Every disadvantage, disadvantage has its has its has its advantage." That's the worst quote ever right now. But let's say like because of some decisions you make, it becomes something better, you know, or something like, "Wow, this works really fine." And sometimes you do it out of a out of a different. Uh, you have to decide something not in an artistic way, but in a realistic. I have to get this movie made way, but then it comes out great, you know. So some that that, that worked really well. Also within the woods, what, what was really difficult was um, you got have to walk all the way up to the hills, you know, where all the crew has to carry stuff. And like in what I, I bet the Revenant was really tough, but I also know that they had a chopper that dro- dropped them off at the at the set. You know, we didn't have a chopper. You know, we had to walk all the way there. You know, so 
that was, that yeah, and I imagine having to find places that are close to the roads, and while making a storyline that has to be remote, yeah. uh, you ended up with challenges of modern technology and developments. One of my favorite quotes from uh, Kurosawa was he's getting interviewed. I think about Ron, and the interviewer is saying, "Hey, this." this uh, shot you made of this army coming down this hill, it's just so beautiful. And, uh, you know, how did you choose to stage it? And he said, well, if I pan the camera too far to the left, I'd see a shopping mall. And if I pan it any further to the right, I'd just see electrical poles. <laughs> you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you got to make your freaking movie. Yeah. And in the world will dictate in, in the necessity of just getting it freaking done will dictate what kind of movie you make. I think you made a pretty awesome movie. Uh, you know, one thing that they also don't have in the States here that, that is tough for us is the financing. How much of the movie, you know, it, you know, obviously the movie shooting in Canada is a huge advantage. And this, I don't think that making an indie like this uh, is possible in a place like Minnesota or maybe even in the Pacific Northwest because of the financing um, just not being available. The government funds just aren't really available for that. But in Canada, Everyone loves shooting in Canada because you can get that film grant and the film fund from the from Canada. Was there a co-production going on with with Belgium because uh, of uh, your nationality? No. Well, the thing was originally originally the idea was to shoot this movie in Belgium, and I, I think that was also one of the reasons why why there was a pool of directors, I assume, and then generally they they. I mean, I was. Originally, we were planning to shoot this movie in Belgium because of government funding. But there's people, uh, grants here in Belgium, but there's people who've taken advantage of uh, disadvantages of the system. So just about when we were starting the pre-production here in, in Belgium, they said, well, sorry, like there's too much people that take, uh, take advantage of the system. We won't allow you. So we had to change to Canada really fast because those were the two options, shoot in Belgium or in Canada. And Belgium would have been really weird because you've seen the movie, you know? Mm-hmm. You're like there's, the town is, has become such a big part of the, of the movie right now. So if I had to shoot this in Belgium, we couldn't, have, we couldn't shoot anything almost in a town. So I really had to change the script and all that stuff. So I'm really and also, yeah, I, I would say I was going to say that the Native American, the First Nations presence in the movie of how many of the characters were First Nations and the actors were First Nations. That's a character in the movie is you have these two Caucasian leads in the sheriff and in, uh, you know, in, in Nikolai's character. And it's like there's almost this understated you're not welcome or you're not of this world. And then picking a primitive weapon like the Adelettle. Uh, you know, is also a character in the movie, and they're they're going up against something that they are not familiar with, and it's a disadvantage for them in uh in pursuing this mystery. Yeah, Belgium would have been weird, dude. That would have been really weird. It would have been awesome because you could have just like had some home cooking, but at the end of the day, I think that it would have removed a pretty important character from the film in the 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 First Nations presence. If I'm not mistaken, Mandy, the movie is shot in Belgium as well. Is that wait the the Nicolas Cage one, the yeah, the yeah, like yeah. real psychotropic, yeah. like head trip of a movie that was shot in Belgium? Yeah, 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 yeah. I've been to Belgium. You guys have some beautiful, beautiful woods, and this movie definitely could have been uh, done in Belgium. I think that uh, the uh, I think that the challenge though is that 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 there's something inherently north uh, northern. Northern America's yeah. about this movie, right? Definitely. And 
And I think that it really adds to that mood. It, it, you know, remember Insomnia, the Christopher Nolan movie that nobody talks about? Yeah. Like, th- like that is a character going to like the ends of the earth where there's not a whole lot of civilization and in doing so not a whole lot of help. There's a lot there. And I think, I think that's a movie that's super overlooked in Christopher Nolan's like uh, filmography. And uh, it's worth, I think it's worth revisiting because Chris, because Robin Williams is awesome in that movie. Yeah, yeah. And he's super creepy in that movie. But the, the big character in that movie is, this middle of nowhere shooting that far north though robin like were you racing the sun like what type of what time of year did you shoot this movie because obviously that far north the sun starts doing some really weird stuff and that affects your hours too yeah i mean honestly i was i was i was very naive going into it being like i flew to toronto and i was like oh beginning of march and i just came in with a jeans and a jacket and was freezing and i couldn't like Dude, so I don't mean to laugh, but that's funny. And then we drove up north, and like it was packed with snow, so I had to buy snowshoes and all that stuff. And then like I actually went to the library of Sudbury to rent snowshoes. <laughs> For some reason, they rent out snowshoes, and I just and I the problem was like nobody could tell me when the snow would be gone. So I had this it would be a nightmare if I had to shoot half of the movie in the snow and then the other half when the snow would be gone, you know, like absolutely. Yeah. CGI is not going to save you on that one. No. So, and then, and then everybody, yeah, snow will be gone. Snow will be gone. But I could like, I saw the snow with my own eyes. It was like just meters and meters and meters of snow. And I was like, how oh, this snow is not going to be gone. But eventually it, it, yeah, it, it went, it, the snow got uh, melted. And so, yeah, I was really happy, but it, it's just a weird, like, I, I'm from Belgium, it's such a small country. It's like, I couldn't believe how, I, I look on the map and I see how spread out uh, Ontario or Canada is. But when, you, when you're driving around, like, you can't believe it, you know. It's just, yeah, the whole, I couldn't grasp just the, 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 the vastness of the country, you know. And I, I was amazed by it and it's beautiful, but it's also, yeah, it's, it's hard, you know. One location is like 80 miles from another location, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but I love it here because the expanse really does create that feeling that there's nobody to help these characters when when stuff starts getting real in the script. And I'm guessing over the summer, your days were longer. So the nights that you had to really race to finish shooting in were very short. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And, That's, and the worst thing was the, the, the thing with the mosquitoes, man. Like, there were so many mosquitoes at some point. I had to... <laughs> I started, I had to wear a ghillie suit of my own, you know, just like a mosquito. <laughs> like, I, I, it was very hard for me to command respect on the set when I looked at the mosquito. You look like Snuffleupagus and you're trying to give direction. <laughs> you look like a Sesame Street character. And you're sitting there trying to, I can imagine how that's a problem. Uh, if only, like, you're probably pretty muffled. <laughs> told you about the, the mosquitoes but i think i guess that's what happens when you shoot near bodies of water that much you know in the middle of the summer there's probably mosquitoes everywhere <laughs> the the movie's an accomplishment man I, I really like this movie and i hope the audience checks this out because i mean it doesn't really i mean you're i think the audience is really only going to know nikolai from game of thrones he's a pretty awesome lead and uh and this is a really good showcase for him because, like you said, he, he does some comedy. He does some wry comedy in this one. Uh, but the drama is really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you did a really good job of um, of really getting some turns out of him. 
you know, where where he he has to go from drunk to very aware very quickly. Yeah. And you yeah. didn't bail and you don't and, and he's he's a good actor. You don't bail him out with like the camera. You don't bail him out with like a close-up shot or cutting to a close-up shot. You left him in these wides or these static shots where you could see him handle the turns on his own. How much of that was a choice to say I'm going to put some long takes in this film. Definitely, you know, I, I, I just, I, I love that, you know, and it's just, yeah, it's something. Even in my previous film, it's always like I love when a scene just plays out in a long take, you know, it's just like because it's easy, you know, just like you do a master, you do a coverage, bomb, you do it in the edit. But I just, I, I, it's something that you feel as well, you know. I, I love doing like these. these Plan séquences as well. Plan séquences is the word in French. What's the word in English? Like just one takers where you see the actors move around and do the whole scene. I just love that, you know. And just it's it's, it's great when you're working with these actors who are such, you know, they're great. You know, they're just honestly really great. You know, it's like it's it's you get the keys to a Ferrari. You know, when you when you're working with an actor like Nikolai, it's just a little bit more, a little bit less. All right, let's do this, let's do that. You know, and it's very. Yeah, it's, it's, it challenges you so much, you know. He's, he's very much an actor, like, he wants to, he doesn't, like, that's the one thing he said to me and has always stuck with me. He said, I don't want to do anything that I don't believe in, you know. So if I say, walk through that door and take a look to your left, and he wants to know why he's going to take a look to your left, I can't say, and I sometimes I did. I said, no, it will look cool. And he says, I don't want to do it because it looks cool. You have to tell me, and I, all right. And then I explained it to him, and then he was like, all right, cool. And then he said, great, let's do it like that. So he was very, yeah, it's very much a process with him because he's very smart and he's very, you know, he just, yeah, great. It's just a, like you can go to five years of film school, but if you if you work with actors who are so experienced like him, you, you learn so much, you know. Yeah, were you intimidated at any times? Uh, intimidated, no. Maybe that's not the right word, but just one of those, you know, where you have to, like, psych yourself up and say, okay, like, you know, because it is easy to just fax. You know, there, you know, on a shoot like this, even if you were you have a really compressed shoot, and maybe because you have a compressed shoot, it, you know, it, it's hard. You just said you got eaten alive by mosquitoes. You, you're racing to make your days. Uh, you know, I'm guessing you're not sleeping a whole lot and there's plenty of opportunities for a director to say, you know what, this isn't a battle I'm going to fight this, you know, maybe I'm going to show up and I'm going to fall back on the coverage or I'm going to show up and I'm going to let my DP handle a lot of the heavy lifting visually or some of the decisions. Uh, what did you do to keep yourself like up to mental shape to kind of keep yourself in the game and say, I'm going to, I'm going to show up every, every minute of this shoot because it's a it's still a marathon dude yeah but I, the one thing that i really underestimated and is that i went to this set alone you know that I, I look i'm just a kid from belgium and suddenly i was in a country that i didn't know anybody you know none and, of your collaborators from your earlier films were part of this project no so it was crazy dude that's freaky that's real i i went to england to shoot a video to shoot and i was the only one in that country or I was the only one in London on the project that I, that I knew before I landed, and it was hard, dude. Like, there's you don't know any of the resources, you don't know what to follow. Like, that's tough, dude. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's that's 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 the one thing. Like, I I didn't really get homesick, but I did start. You know, in the weekends, also you're just so tired, and the hotel is like literally in the middle of nowhere, and you're just looking at the storyboards, and you're just working the whole time, and. 
and just you're too tired to do anything. You go on a treadmill for five minutes and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to do this. So you go off the treadmill and yeah, it's just, and I just, you know, I, have to, I called my parents and my, my girlfriend, my, actually my girlfriend went to visit me because at some point I was like, and this was during the shoot, I was like, oh, I, mean, I really, because it was really tough, you know, because I underest, I didn't underestimate the shoot itself. I underestimated what it meant to be in a country for four months by yourself. You know, I've never done that in my life. So I really needed somebody at some point to, 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 to even talk, speak my own language with, you know, because sure. it, it was just. That was that was difficult, but the act and I have to say the actors they were really, they're I mean they're professionals they challenge you but they're really nice people you know and Nikolai is great fun Annabelle was just a blast and all these people yeah they're they're really they sometimes it was tough you know like well, we have to make the days or we have to or we have to relocate this scene because we're not going to make it today and then I have to come up with solutions the whole time and they and they sometimes you know yeah. At some point, I remember this one guy, Steve, he was a camera operator, and I was just, uh, there was a really difficult thing that didn't go through, and we had to, and I think it was a moment of self-pity, self-pity, and I was like, oh, man, why the, why did this happen today of all days? Like, it has something sure. to do with the, and the camera, and I looked at the camera operator, and I was hoping he would say, it'll be all right, buddy, but he just said, you're in the big seat now, boy. And I was like, all right, yeah, that's true. You know, that's like, I chose this profession, you know, I, I and I had to own up to it. I didn't, because it's easy to be let down and be like, oh, why is it all, all this stuff happening, you know? But it's, you have to just come up, you can't think too much about it. You have to, every day you have to storm to the walls and, and come up with solutions. Yeah, I think that there's a lot to be said for people who, have less intelligence and they fail upwards <laughs> just being just having that that's I, I, you can't even call it a skill but they're not aware of the stakes and they just go for it because what else is there you know and uh and i think yeah if you start down that road of self-pity or thinking about something too much you'll talk yourself into any situation you'll just talk yourself right out of it and I, I bet you uh, cursed the uh, the people pillaging the Belgian film funds real fast <laughs> in the middle of those four months. You were like, "Why couldn't we have shot this at home?" I hate those people. <laughs> no, but I, like I said, like if I look at the movie now, I can't even imagine shooting it in Belgium anymore. You know, because the town and the the setting is. is I mean. I've done some interviews for this film already and everybody, you know, the first thing they always ask is about the setting and how much is the town, like a character in the movie. So it would, it would have been crazy to shoot this movie in Belgium. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And, uh, and if anything, you picked up some serious muscle doing this and you, you learned some real skills about yourself and, and your ability to do it. And I think that if you're a young filmmaker, you just have to, take these hits. And like you said, that, that quote you gave me, you have to roll them into successes. You have to roll them into advantages. Yeah. All these disadvantages come in, you know, can be turned into advantages. And I think that's something if you're into filmmaking or not, and you're listening to this podcast, you can, you can put that in any facet of your life yeah. because, because life has no shortage of effing you over. <laughs> life is very good at finding ways to tell you to toughen up and to throw you some tough, some tough breaks. Yeah. And but but it's about stepping up to the plate 
you know um we'll see how you do in south africa man i, w- I want you to kick some ass here on this next movie it, it's a it's a done deal this is this next no, one you're gonna do no so this is just a project that i've been working on since lockdown you know but i was about yeah to, i was about to shoot this is also crazy I've been working on a film on and off for 10 years since I got into fil- when I got to film school the first question that they ask you is what does your uh, what what does your ideal movie look like what's the one movie you really want to make in your life and I have this one movie that I really want to make about this revolutionary nightclub in Antwerp where I grew up that uh it's kind of like the social network meets casino about this computer nerd who had no friends but he built this revolutionary infrastructure and then had this crazy nightclub that everybody went to, but everything came crashing down brutally. And it's a story that I really want to tell. I researched it for like years and years, and then I wrote a script. And it's a, it's a it's an epic film that I that I mean I'm really enthusiastic about it. And on the day that I started shooting, so I did three months of prep. On the day that I started shooting, the country went in lockdown and they canceled everything, and now everything's postponed for a year. Yeah, but the good the good news is you're doing better than the U.S., right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I think Belgium's doing better than the U.S., right? Well, actually, it's crazy. Uh, my town specifically, Antwerp, is unreal. We have a uh, it ha- ever uh, we have to be in our beds in our homes by eleven because of uh, the the last couple of weeks we had this yeah another COVID uh, explosion again. So. It's like it, that hasn't happened since World War II when the Germans attacked. So we have to be in our best by eleven. So yeah, I mean, we need we need. I mean, just to to say it here in the U.S., we need something. Yeah, like uh, some, we need something like that because everyone's kind of doing what they want, and you can say freedom and all that, but like everybody's doing what they want, and it's like telling a bunch of kids like, "Don't pee in the pool, or you're going to end up with pee on yourself." Yeah. And most people. Don't pee in the pool, but you just need one person to pee in the pool and suddenly everybody has pee all over themselves again. So, like, we're having some trouble here in the U.S. getting it together. Like, we should be in bed by 11. (laughs) We should should all be at home at 11, but you still see people out at nightclubs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy, you know. It's it's very difficult, you know, because it's... Yeah, it's hard for the for kids to understand the, the consequences because it they have the idea that it doesn't affect them, but it affects so many other people, you know. But it's I, I imagine you know if you're young and you're like, oh, this is gonna be my summer, and suddenly you have to be locked up all summer. It's difficult as well. I understand the kids as well. It's difficult for them as well, you know. It's just it's a it's a situation where nobody's to blame for, but you want to put the blame on somebody. But it's yeah, it's just difficult. No, I, I get you, man. We're in this together. Um, dude, Robin, thanks for coming on the show, dude. No, enjoy talking to you, man. It was awesome. The movie is called The Silencing. Uh, it comes out August 14th here in the States. You can find it on your VOD platforms. Uh, and what I want you all to do is I want you all to go on your Xbox or PlayStation or your smart TVs and or your devices. And I want you, you all to find The Silencing. And I want you to watch this movie. Uh, it's, it's, it's really awesome. And those of you in film school, it's a really great example of an indie thriller. I think like Robin and company really knocked it out of the park and you just heard the circumstances with which he had to make the movie. Those weren't easy, you know, just the mosquitoes. Yeah. The, it's, it wasn't easy. Uh, so watch the movie and interpret it and appreciate it. I think it's a really great uh, movie, dude. I think you really did a really good job, Dan. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being facetious. I think it's really good. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, so what did you think? That was Robin. He made a pretty damn good movie in The Silencing. I hope you all check it out this weekend. And that's Geekscape. If you need me, I'm Jonathan at geekscape.net. We'll be back soon with a video episode live that you can watch on Facebook 
or Twitch or YouTube, and you could be a part of it. Uh, let me know what you think of these audio only episodes, because I do get filmmakers and professionals who want to pre-record with me. And sometimes I say no, because I like doing the video show. I love having y'all in the comment section being part of the show. So uh, let me know if you enjoy these audio only episodes. I've been working really hard to get the quality uh, up on the audio on my on my microphone. I can do it now because I'm sitting in a bathroom <laughs> recording this. Uh, but for one of the live episodes uh, that we do over StreamYard, I just think that the audio, at least on my microphone, suffers a lot. So I'm trying to figure out how to get that audio back up on my on my. Uh, uh, I just want that quality to go back up on my audio uh, and keep the live experience. It's really important to me, but I value your feedback. Again, Jonathan at Geekscape.net. Obviously, you can always tweet at us. I'm at Jonathan Lennon on Twitter. There's at Geekscape.net on Twitter. And you can find us on Instagram. And as I said before, at the top of the show on Facebook. I hope your friends who you shared this episode with enjoyed it. I hope you really did that. I hope you hit that share button. I hope you sent it to five of your friends and said, hey, this is Geekscape, one of the oldest podcasts on the internet. And I think it's awesome. And you're a filmmaker, you're into movies, maybe you'll enjoy this. Or you're into music, I think you'll enjoy this. I think the Vinny Fiorello episode that I did last time was awesome. But again, forgive me my audio. That was gross. And uh, it's pretty embarrassing to be doing an episode with like one of your favorite musicians and uh, somebody who literally helped make the soundtrack to your life. And you sound <laughs> like you're in the middle of, I don't know, what did it sound like? It sounded like I was in a wind tunnel or uh, I think Steve from Punchline said, it sounded like you were talking to me from heaven because it was just this echo in my voice. And I could not have been more mortified when I was editing that show because I hated the way I sounded. So whether it's a brand new microphone, a brand new recording setup in Los Angeles, or I got to figure out some way to do this, uh, you know, on the go as I'm doing now, whatever it takes, I've got to get the quality up on the audio on the live Geekscapes because it's very, very important to me. And I hope it's important to y'all too. I hope you all value Geekscape and the work that we put into it. Uh, if you enjoy this episode, also go check out the rest of our website. We've got tons of podcasts, the whole team is working hard to give you guys some really great entertainment. So jump on it at geekscape.net or just search for anything Geekscape on your podcatchers. Love y'all so much. We still have t-shirts up at the store, but I think you're tired of my self-promotion. So I will let you go. Go listen to something else. Hopefully it's Geekscape. If not, I just hope you enjoy yourselves. This is Jonathan saying over and out. Peace. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.